I wonder how you would finish this statement. The greatest need of every pastor is... The greatest need of every missionary is... The greatest need of every Christian is... Really, how would you finish that? And if you're taking notes, maybe jot down a, a thought or a phrase. Uh, what do you understand your greatest need to be? One author put it this way. The greatest need of every pastor and missionary and Christian is to know God better than they know anything. And to enjoy God more than they enjoy anything. To know God better than they know anything, and to enjoy God more than they enjoy anything. And understanding that in order to do those things that would necessitate a forgiveness of sin, I think that's a pretty good answer. And as I've thought about this this week, it's just informed and it's reminded me afresh of why it is that I, as one of the pastors here, do what I do. It's why we as elders do what we do. We study, we pray, we preach, we counsel, we lead, we guide, and we shepherd in such a way that you would be helped in knowing God better than you do and enjoying Him more than you do. But it's not just what I do, it's not just what our elders do in service to you, it's also what we are called to do in terms of our own soul. We're not merely seeking to study so that you would know more and enjoy more. No, the, one of the greatest impetus on the life of, a, of an elder is that he would study more to know his God. And that he would enjoy his God more than anything else. And what's true of the pastor is true of you, Christian. I mean, it's important for you to have your eye on how you serve others, but it's also vital that you labor to ensure that you know God and you enjoy God more than anything else. And so I want to ask you at the outset of our sermon this morning, does your public life match your private life? Are you more concerned about looking like you know and enjoy God rather than knowing and enjoying God? Do you commend Jesus to others because you treasure him more than anything else? Do you take care of your character and so entrust God with your reputation? Or are you willing to maybe neglect character to make sure the reputation is polished? Well, Paul has written to his younger counterpart in the ministry, Timothy, in this letter that we're walking through, 1 Timothy. And he's written to make clear that Timothy is to refute false teaching and false doctrine. But what we'll learn this morning is that for Paul, refuting false doctrine and false teaching wasn't merely about having the right message, though that was foundational to refuting false teaching. As we'll see this morning, Paul also says... To refute false teaching and false doctrine requires you not only to have the right message, but to have the right life. 
Godliness is both the goal of the Christian life and the basis for Christian ministry. It's the goal of the Christian life. It's the basis of Christian ministry. Godliness is not just the product of effective ministry. It's also the means of effective ministry. If you desire to, have a, to be effective in the ministry that you are called to, then you will aim at godliness. To have the most effective ministry that we can have, then we must know God better than anything. And we must enjoy him better than anything. And so I want to pray this morning that the sermon would help us do just that. Let's pray. Our eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, would you allow the words that your Holy Spirit has inspired to go forth, to be preached with clarity, so that you would write your word upon our hearts. I pray that we would receive and believe your word, that we would be cheered on and comforted by your word. Pray that you would allow your word to shine so bright and to radiate such warmth that we would find pleasure in it. Through your Holy Spirit, that we would believe what is right. And by your power, we would walk in a manner that's pleasing unto you. And so for that to happen, I am aware that the sermon that is preached, uh, the sermon that is heard, has, it must be far more effective than the one that is preached. And so supply the grace needed for this moment, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them. 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of those in the pew backs in front of you. If you use the New American Standard, that will be uh, the translation I will be preaching from. You can find that in the New Testament, Old New Testament, in the New Testament, the back half, page 164. It would, it would serve us well as we jump into 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, to just re- remind ourselves what Paul has just mentioned in verses 1 through 5. Paul said to Timothy, that in the days that they were living, that false teachers would show themselves. And they would show themselves in the church, and they would lead some professing Christians to walk away from the faith. And they would do it through a form of legalism that has come to be known as asceticism. This idea of avoiding good things that God has created, in particular, Paul mentioned last week, marriage and food, so to earn God's approval, so to seek his favor. And so if we can sort of beat this body and submit this body to the, to the point of saying nothing is good, so we deny the body pleasure, then we can earn, based on our performance, we can earn the favor of God. It was this belief plus kind of theology. Yes, we believe, plus we do work. Believe plus. Paul called such teachings demonic, as we saw last week. And he said that these teachings have come to God's people through liars who have had their conscience seared because they repeatedly ignore God 
and they repeatedly indulge their sin. Well, the rest of chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, it's one large section, and we've broken it up, and so one large section, we will cover it in two sermons. This morning we will be in 6 through 10, next week we'll finish out the chapter. And the theme of this section could be summarized really in verse 6. What does it mean to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? Up until now, Paul has addressed Timothy pretty sparingly. He's writing this letter to Timothy, but it's a letter that's meant to be read in front of the church. And so thus far, it's been a lot of information, not so much directed specifically at Timothy, but for the people of God, so that they would know, remember 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, so they would know how to conduct themselves as the household of faith. Up until chapter 4, verse 6, there has only been really two, uh, three second-person verbs. And so only three times thus far has Paul looked at Timothy, Timothy and said, now you do this. But something changes. The tone of the letter changes beginning in verse 6. The next three chapters, he will address Timothy in the second person with those verbs 23 times. And so he's the first, up until the first uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and the first five verses of chapter 4, he's addressed Timothy specifically three times, now 23 times. And so Paul's going to press into Timothy. He's not just going to press into Timothy. By extension, he's pressing into pastors, elders, those that are giving oversight to the people of God. But it's not just Timothy and pastors, elders. And perhaps you're sitting here thinking, okay, I'm not Timothy, nor am I an elder. So is this going to be just, uh, am I going to be lost this, this morning? No, he's also pressing into Christians generally. So Timothy pastors specifically, Christians generally. You see, everything the Bible calls church leaders to do and be is meant to be in part what every Christian is called to do and be. And you say, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. You say, well, I don't, I'm, I don't have the gift of teaching. Well, the Great Commission says that you will teach people to observe all that Christ has commanded. And so in some part, everything that's required of a church leader to do and be, every Christian is required to do and be. And so my working assumption this morning is that every professing Christian in this room desires to hear on that last day, well done, my good and faithful servant. And perhaps you're not a Christian and you're not too sure that you care to even hear that commendation from God. If I could just remind you that you were made to live for something so much bigger than yourself. You were made to live for the one who created you and before the one to whom you will be accountable for. I, I spent 17 years of my life missing this. And it wasn't until someone shared the truth with me to help me overcome some of my misconceptions and false beliefs that I learned who Jesus really was and what my needs really were and how he alone was the only solution for my needs. And so if you're not a Christian, I would invite you this morning to to learn with us 
as we look in to see what Paul says to Timothy is to, is to mark a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so we'll consider four traits this morning as we walk through the passage. Those four traits will be our sermon points. And so a good servant of Christ Jesus, number one, distinguishes truth from false teaching. A good servant of Christ Jesus distinguishes truth from false teaching. Look again in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 4, even the, just the first part of verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In pointing out these things, what are these things that he's mentioning? Well, these things would refer to what he's just spoken of in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It's what we just said. It was this asceticism. That if you were going to earn the favor of God, then you had to abstain from certain, yeah, you had to abstain from certain foods, abstain from marriage, to sort of show that you were truly devoted to God. And what, what Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, if you will clarify the truth, because he doesn't just point out what was wrong with the teaching, he then comes back around and shows why it's wrong. It's wrong because it, it makes void what God's word says is good. So it's a contradiction to the word of God. And Paul's telling Timothy that if you will clarify the truth and you will call out the falsehoods that are being taught, you will be serving the brothers and sisters of the church. If you call out falsehoods and you clarify the truth, Central to the ministry of an elder is faithful, truth-filled preaching and teaching of the Word of God. It's central. Elders are to hold firm to the gospel. It's what Paul will say to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. They are to hold firm to the gospel, which means that elders must warn others of dangerous teachers and teachings which are at odds with the word of God. And elders take this stand. Do you know why? Because they fear God more than they fear man. To be faithful, elders must point these things out. There is a finger-pointing ministry that elders are meant to exercise. Not a, we're better than you, but a beware, there is false teaching. And look, here is the truth. Elders, take a stand here. Elders desire and ought be faithful here. And so if you're a member of a church, you're a Christian, I would just encourage you what this would mean for you is that it would be good for you to pray that your elders... Love your soul more than they love your approval. That they would give themselves to pointing out false teachings and giving themselves to pointing you to truth. Faithful elders must love God's truth more than the preferences of his people. Elders must do this winsomely and faithfully and lovingly, but elders must always side with God. And church, it's your responsibility that if elders ever begin to do likewise, 
you should seek to have conversations with those elders, have conversations uh, even in the appropriate channels so as, to, so as to not follow elders that are contrary to the word of God. What profit would it be for you to be happy with your pastor all the while you skip towards the dangerous road to false teaching? A pastor's heart is most clearly displayed not by how softly he pets the sheep, but how diligently he feeds and leads and protects the sheep. But as I said, this isn't written only to elders. Every follower of Christ has this role too. So if elders are charged with with this faithful, truth-filled preaching and teaching of the Word of God, every follower of Christ is charged to bring faithful, truth-filled words into all relationships. Your willingness to do this matters. It matters. Because what we take in begins to shape our lives and our souls. And so failure for Christians to think biblically and theologically leads to all kinds of problems. And so when you see concerning social media posts, when you hear of conversations that, that don't seem to be quite true, or it's not what God's Word says, be a good servant of Christ Jesus and winsomely, lovingly, and faithfully point out falsehoods. Church, that's best done with Bible in your hand. Not waging your opinion versus the opinion of another. And hold out truth. And this matters because you are fundamentally a servant of Christ Jesus. Your identity rests most fully there. You are not primarily your job title. You're not primarily your relationship status. You're not primarily your giftedness. Before anything else, you are a servant of Christ Jesus. It is possible to be a bad servant of Christ Jesus. And Paul is laboring so that Timothy and these brothers and sisters at the church in Ephesus, they would be good servants of Christ Jesus. I wonder if that's your aim. Is that your aim this morning? To be a good servant of the one who who has saved and redeemed you. Paul knows who it is that he's going to answer to and that shapes the way that he lives. And so he commends that to Timothy. And he commends that to pastors and he commends that to all Christians. To be a good servant, we must clarify what matters most. Friends, if your God always agrees with you, I don't believe it's the living God of the Bible that you're likely following. Christians who hold out the truth in love are a gift from God. Pastors who hold out the truth in love are a gift from God. And while some of you should prayerfully consider a ministry of longevity here, And you should spend your life working to ensure that this church in particular is full of those 
who were able and willing to distinguish truth from falsehoods. Some of you should pray that. Some of you should beg the Lord to allow the roots of your life to grow deep for many, many years. But others of you will be sent out from here. You'll relocate. And what it is that you ought to prioritize in that relocation is finding a church who takes the word of God seriously and who fights to interpret it correctly. Look for a church that's full of elders and members who are marked by faithful, truth-filled teaching and preaching and conversations that are willing to, to sort of go out in love in hopes of distinguishing the truth from error. And so a good servant of Christ doesn't just distinguish truth from false teaching. But number two, a good servant of Christ is nourished on the truth. A good servant of Christ is nourished on the truth. We could add the truth of the gospel and sound doctrine. And so the second trait, good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truth, the gospel, and sound doctrine. Look again at verse 6, the latter half of verse 6. And pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Good servants find themselves constantly going back to the waterhole. Good servants of Christ Jesus don't merely sort of have an interaction with God and then walk away and just assume that somehow that interaction is going to supply moment by moment, day by day, grace needed. They are constantly being nourished. Paul anticipates that Timothy, who has been nourished, is being nourished and will continue to be nourished. Continue to be fed. Continue to grow in health. But nourished on what? Well, Paul mentions two things. Nourished on the words of the faith and on the sound doctrine that you've been following. Paul knows it will be tempting for a professionalism of sorts to set in that would lead him to stand up and to call other people to do the things that he wasn't willing to do himself. I wonder just even in saying that, I wonder how comfortable you and I have gotten in calling other people and counseling other people to walk with God in such a way that we ourselves aren't even doing. We know it's good, but we have reasons. No, those leading others in the truth ought to be those that are most nourished by it. And Paul is laboring to ensure that Timothy doesn't fall prey to the professionalism that says just study enough and stand up and deliver rightly for their good. No, no, Timothy. You want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus? You find yourself constantly nourished, your own soul benefiting. Paul says, Timothy, if you aren't in the word, you won't faithfully give out the word. John Piper has said it this way, we won't commend to others what we ourselves don't cherish. 
I don't know if I'll ever forget in reading through 1 Timothy early on in pastoral ministry and the Spirit using this passage in particular just to challenge me. Justin, there are so many good resources available. It is really tempting for you to go and to just live off other pastors and theologians' nourishment. The intimacy and the sweetness of their walk with the Lord, it, it's easy just to sort of say, I don't, I don't even have to do the hard work of disciplining myself for the purpose of godliness. In fact, I can just listen to other men that are doing it and sort of just glean from there. And it, there is a place for gleaning. It, is, it makes for a terrible substitute to say, I'm going to neglect constantly nourishing my soul on the word of God and on sound doctrine. And instead of me doing that work, I'm just going to live off the work that other men and other pastors and other theologians and other authors are doing. The words of faith. The words of faith would include both the scriptures generally and the gospel specifically. The fuel for his godliness was to be the feeding upon the word of God. Again, I would just would encourage you, flip through Psalm 119 and just see the benefit that comes from feasting on the word of God. And we're, 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 far, we're far away removed from the realm of just, man, let's fight to sort of just have a quiet time. No, I'm just talking about enjoying God and feasting on his word. And I think it will make its way out in some structured disciplines. But is this even a desire? Do you even recognize the need to constantly be nourished by the word of God? And do you understand the word of God to provide exactly what you need? Those that are hungry and starving. They do everything to get to sustenance. I've just been praying this week, God, would you allow my life, would you allow our life together and individual lives to be marked by a, a hungry desperation for your word? That we would just say, Lord, we want to feast on your word. But it's not just the scriptures, the words of faith aren't just the scriptures generally, but it's the gospel specifically. The gospel specifically. When I say the gospel, I mean the story of, uh, of God and how God redeemed and rescued a people who though they were created to know him and enjoy him more than anything else, they had enough sin in them, enough rebellion in them, enough wickedness in them to turn from that and even to be unable to do that because of their sin. The people that he created, they were guilty. And this God whom created and the God to whom all humanity is accountable, he has righteous wrath to be poured out on all who sinned. And so just put yourself in the story. If you have sinned, 
you have sinned against an eternal holy God. And the punishment for sin against an eternal holy God is an eternal punishment whereby the holy God would pour out his righteous wrath and anger and hatred against sin. Eternal. And you say, well, I'm only going to live, who knows, I'm I'm only going to live 80. Well, that's why on the other side of your last breath, there is a literal place of torment. We're just agonizing. The only thing that's experienced is that righteous hatred and wrath of God poured out on those who went to their grave still in their sin. And this is a problem. It's a problem for every one of us in this room because I just described every one of us in this room. This is the condition that we were born into. These are the choices that we continue to make. And so when I say gospel, I'm saying the reality of that and then the good news of what this eternal God has done. He sent his eternal son to come down and to take on flesh and to live a sinless life that would please the Father and to die a wrath-bearing death. What, What did we say that was deserving of every sinner? God's righteous wrath and anger. And Christ has come and Christ would live perfectly and he would get to the end of his life and he would bear that wrath. And in many ways, the the picture, it's God's wrath coming at me. I'm a sinner. I have nothing. I I I don't have any excuse. I'm guilty. And yet Christ would stand and he would absorb it all. And so the righteousness that his life secured would be placed on all who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in him. And that wrath bearing death that every sinner deserves those repenting sinners would be spared from it and that would be placed on Christ. And all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they know that hope isn't just for this life, but it's also for the life to come. And there will be a life to come because the Savior who absorbed our wrath is also the one who rose triumphantly from the dead showing that not even death and sin get the last word with him. And so the good news this morning, friends, is that this unparalleled love love is available to all who would give up their sin and trust in the work of Christ alone. If you're not a Christian, I I would plead with you, give up your sin. And trust in this work as your only hope to earning any favor with God. Put away your attempts at not doing this and doing this. Believe. See your sin, hate your sin, turn from your sin, and believe. You can then know what it's like to have your soul nourished on the good news of the Christian faith. But this gospel, this gospel, it's to be nourishment, not to Timothy, who's not, a, not yet a Christian, but to Timothy, who's a pastor. And this gospel is not merely to be nourishment to, to those that have never heard of Jesus, but also 
to every Christian. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I will never grow nor experience fruit in our lives that we otherwise could have if we aren't constantly nourished in the truth of God and the gospel. It doesn't happen. Perhaps you're thinking, why in the world am I not growing more than I am as a Christian? I thought that, one, I thought that if I followed Jesus, I would just be growing like a weed. It doesn't happen that way. And perhaps you're not growing because of this primary reason, because you're not going back to have your soul constantly nourished on truth and on the truths of the gospel. This, this isn't an optional, optional exercise for serious Christians. It's for all Christians. There's a direct correlation between godliness and vital, rich, nourishing, kind of digging in to the word of God and the truth of the gospel. We need the word of God in us. We need the truth of the gospel in us. Behind every vibrant personal ministry, there's vibrant personal truths of walking closely with God. Jerry Bridges left a lasting impression on many. When in his writings and some of his teachings, he began to show that Christians are always in need of the gospel. Bridges would say that there seemed to be this movement in the Christian faith that once you became a Christian, you sort of just set that up over to the side. And then you did other things in the Christian life. But listen to what he says in his book, The Discipline of Godliness. He says, to preach the gospel to yourself means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness, and then you flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you take at face value the precious words of Romans 4, 7, and 8. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It means that you believe that the testimony of God, when he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that you believe that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a, a, by becoming a curse for you. Because as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It means that you believe that he forgave you all your sins and now presents you holy in his sight without blemish or free from accusation. Turning to the Old Testament to preach the gospel to yourself means that you appropriate by faith the words of Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way and the Lord had laid the iniquity of us all. Uh, the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. It means that you dwell upon the promise that God has removed your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west, and that he's blotted out your transgressions and remembers your sin no more. It means that you realize that all the wonderful promises of forgiveness are based upon the atoning death of Jesus Christ. It's this death of Christ through which he satisfied the justice of God and averted us from the wrath of God. That's the basis of all of God's promises of forgiveness. And so Jerry Bridges says, this is the gospel that you preach 
to yourself day to day. When you set yourself to, holy, uh, to, to seriously pursue holiness, you will begin to realize what an awful, awful sinner you are. And if you're not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged and you will slack off in your pursuit of holiness. Christian brothers and sisters, you need the gospel. You need it just as much today as you did when you first believed. I pray that you would preach the gospel to yourself. And I pray that we would be a church that faithfully preaches the gospel to one another. And so perhaps you showed up this morning thinking, man, I'm here to find the silver bullet, the magic pill, the fast track to maturity in Christ. And I just want you to know, based on the word of God, it's impossible to grow as a Christian without logging the hours and spending the time with Jesus, constantly going back to the watering hole, having your soul nourished on the scriptures and the truths of the gospel. Are you tending to the care of your soul? A good servant of Jesus also does. Number three. A good servant of Christ Jesus avoids worldly fables and disciplines himself for godliness. A good servant of Christ Jesus avoids worldly fables and disciplines himself or herself for godliness. We see this in verses 7 and 8. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul admonishes, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Paul helps Timothy to see, Timothy, you can't give your attention to everything. In fact, it's, it's dangerous when everything gets your attention. You have to be not merely a generalist, you have to be a specialist in the word of God and in the truths of the gospel. That will mean then that there are certain things that you don't involve yourself with. And so you don't have to, to know the, the ins and outs of every worldly fable. And he says that these worldly fables are fit for old women. Uh, Paul's not trying to crudely write someone off. He's not taking a shot at sisters of age. This was a common way of just speaking to superstitious uh, errors that... Uh, or, or silly myths and preoccupations. This falsehood, these vain conversations, these empty ideas. And so let's just mark it down. Every time a pastor, every time a church, every time a Christian moves away from God's truth, it's only a matter of time before they end up in controversy. Every time. And so I wonder this morning, are there any silly myths are there any worldly preoccupations that are keeping you from the truth? Being a good servant of Christ Jesus isn't just about saying no to false teaching and bad doctrine, but it's saying yes to godliness. And that's what he says. Paul continues, on the other hand, so instead of, instead of busying yourself with worldly fables, on the other hand, 
Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He uses athletic language here to speak of this theme of godliness. This theme is used, uh, 15 uses of this word in the New Testament. 13 of them are used in Paul's writings to the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And of those 13, nine of them are used here in 1st Timothy. I mean, Paul is pressing in to Timothy. Train yourself for godliness. You will not drift there. Train yourself for godliness. Godliness, it doesn't mean that you're pious looking, that you're boring, that you're irrelevant, that you're no fun. No, godliness is the result of encountering the living God in the face of Jesus Christ and the overflow of a life that says, I am His. I'm His. My identity begins there and everything I do is rooted in that. He defined godliness in chapter 3, verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then what's he do? He just kind of sings the hymn. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. this gospel of the Lord from the incarnation to glory. Training ourselves for godliness is pouring this gospel more and more into ourselves. It's thinking more deeply on the fact that the Son of God took on himself our likeness. It's considering the implications of his life, death, and resurrection. Meditate on the resurrection unto eternal life. That changes everything. Because then you begin to realize that no matter what happens in this life, no matter how exhilarating or no matter how, uh, how difficult and tragic it is, it's temporary. It will end. But there is one who is coming that's full of glory and love that will never end. Consider, he was proclaimed among the nations, the, the call to evangelism and missions. That's us training ourselves up for the purpose of godliness. And when we do that, it brings us into deeper contact with the treasures that are in Christ. We will not reach our intended goal of treasuring Christ if we aren't sharing the gospel with others. It's the mystery of godliness. People who find this proclaim him unto the nations. I mean, it it doesn't make sense to say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't care to tell anybody about Jesus. No, foundational to godliness is because I'm a Christian, I want to tell everybody about him. Consider that he was taken up into glory. If your hope is in Christ, the day is coming when you will not only see his glory, but you will share in his glory. You will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb with him. And Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says, He will break out in song over you. Look at this more deeply. Give time, carve out space to just consider more deeply and more thoroughly and more consistently these truths that are meant to make us, impress us, and conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. We can't look into his glory, contemplate his return, and not be changed more and more into his likeness. 
So why, why do this? Well, he tells us, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise, since it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. Verse 9, looking back at that phrase in verse 8, says this is a trustworthy statement and it's deserving of full acceptance. Train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. Do you train yourself to be godly? Praise God for going to the gym and for working out. And if that consumes you, I just want to remind you that all of the gains you make in the gym, they're going to go south. Some, some of us, the gains are going south quicker. <laughs> but the gains that you make in godliness, they don't expire. If you want value that holds promise for this life and the life to come, then exercise for godliness. Train yourself for the purpose of godliness. I wonder this morning how you would answer the question, do you find yourself having a fit body, consumed with having a fit body, and the sad reality of having an overweight, out-of-shape soul? I'm struck by people that I know who go to the gym religiously. And when I meet with them to talk about their growth and godliness, they say, dude, I just don't have time to read or pray. Uh, I mean, they're, they're acting like spending time with the Lord is as difficult of a feat as bench pressing 800 pounds. They're just, dude, I just can't do it. And I just want to say, if that's you, if you regularly find yourself in the gym, right, this is not a, uh, I hope that we take care of the temples of the Holy Spirit, that we steward well the health and the life that we've, we've been given. But if you find yourself like making just, I'm unwilling to compromise on every day in the gym, five days a week, four days a week, but you're struggling to just spend time constantly nourishing yourself on the truth, just cut, cut your workout in half. And double whatever spiritual, triple whatever spiritual exercises you're currently doing. Better to have a fat body and a fit soul. And I realize what you're saying. Uh, and I would agree. I'm not trying to pit these two things against each other. But I just hope we would see that the priority is over training ourselves for godliness. Exceptional athletes are known for their exceptional training. And so what is it that you're intentional about? What is it that you're passionate about? What are you giving adequate time and effort to? John Calvin calls godliness the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. You may be thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like gospel if I have to train myself for godliness. No, no, no. It, it, this is work, but you're not working for something. This is work because you have graciously been granted and given something. And so you work to show that what you have been given really does. It has taken root. 
You tra- we train ourselves for godliness in, in part to even verify that our profession is consistent. A good servant, Acts chapter 4, verse 13. A good servant who trains themselves for godliness, nourishes themselves, they look like Jesus. I mean, this is what the crowds couldn't believe in Acts 4.13. And again, there's no spiritual substitute. There's no way around it. There's no program. There's no silver bullet. We are called to tirelessly give ourselves to the work of God. And even just a word to our elders and deacons. Our church needs us to aggressively build into our schedules time to commune with God and fight for godliness. If we don't have sound doctrine in our bones, our compass will be off and we will be led by fear and not faith. But not just elders and deacons, church members. All members, uh, the church was designed by God with this in mind, that all members would be feasting on sound doctrine and the word and the truths of the gospel and then they would just serve it up to one another freely. Training ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And then lastly, number four, a good servant of Christ Jesus fixes their hope on the living God. A good servant of Christ Jesus fixes their hope on the living God. This is the third time in this letter that Paul said that what he's saying is trustworthy. He's saying this is why we strive, this is why we train, this is why we work hard so that we would see other men enter into this godliness. Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, says that discipline without direction is drudgery. Verse 10 says there is a direction, and the direction is that the hope that we have that's fixed on the living God. No one is sustained by myths, but rather by the fulfillment of the law in Christ. People would look in, at, at verse 10 and say, oh, uh, for it is, it is for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And they would say, wait a minute, is this saying that all men will become believers? That's, that's not what Paul is saying. It's not what he says in other places. I would even encourage you just to go back and to read what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. There are clearly those that are believers and those that are unbelieving in their sin. And so he's not saying that salvation is universal. But he's saying particularly those who have turned from their sin and placed their faith and their trust in Christ. It's as if Paul is singing with the psalmist, Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. He's saying, I'm not trusting in horses and chariots. My hope is fixed and it's on God. That's where my my trust and my hope lies. Perhaps he had Isaiah 31.1 in mind. Woe to those who trust in anything but God. It's a weak trust to depend on strength when strength will fail us with age. It's a weak trust to depend on horses and government and political powers. None of that has muscles. It doesn't have enough muscles to carry our soul to the living God. The only thing that does is the living God himself. 
And so the church must depend on God in all things because he's the living God. He's not dead. He came back from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He now lives to intercede for us. Paul isn't calling Timothy to do anything that Paul himself hasn't done. And we can, we can oftentimes approach God not as the object of our faith, but as the dispenser of it. And God isn't a means of giving us another hope. God's not here to give you another hope some, that's located somewhere else outside of him. God is the hope. We are to fix our hope there. Hoping in God is where Christianity begins. And it's where all godliness comes from. Putting your faith in God's promises is not only what you do when you receive Christ, it's what you do every time you embrace one of the spiritual disciplines or you turn away from the temptations of sin. Godliness means that while most people that you know are putting their hopes in pleasure and pride and prestige and power, you're putting your hope in God through faith. I mean, it's what Ray Miller wrote in 1922. I'd rather have Jesus than man's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Take care of your character and let God take care of your reputation. Godliness is not just the way that people who are in ministry should live. It's the way that all followers should live. The Bible calls us to see and to receive and to live by the truth that leads to life. And godliness and training for is not something that's for a special class of Christian. It's for all Christians. Becoming more and more like God. And when we do that, we then come to know what it really means to truly live. Let's pray. God, as we think about your word and we think about the truth of it and in it, we're asking you to change us by it. So, Lord, help us. Help us be good servants of Christ Jesus. Help us know him better than anything else and to enjoy him more. And so in this moment of silence, remind us of how you, through your spirit, desire for us to respond. Speak now. Your servants are listening.